We're continuing today in our preaching series through the Gospel according to Mark. Some of you think we'll never get out of here. Um, Maybe there are a few like me who hope we never get out of here. Uh, So Mark chapter 9, if you have your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to turn with me. Mark chapter 9. I'm going to read verses 30 to 37, though I'm becoming less and less confident that we're going to... uh, cover everything that I had intended to cover today because I just feel the Lord moving in a particular direction. But Mark chapter 9, uh, beginning in verse 30, I'm going to invite you to stand uh, for the reading of God's Word this morning. Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 30. I'm reading from the New International Version. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were, because He was teaching His disciples. He said to them, The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill Him, and after three days He will rise. But they did not understand what He meant, and were afraid to ask Him about it. They came to Capernaum. When He was in the house, He asked them, What were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet, because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child and had him stand among them. Taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. This is the word of God. I invite you to be seated. I... uh, as I was thinking about the space that Jesus creates for us, it's been a, uh, it's, it's had its moments, it, this, these last few verses of Mark that we've been dealing with over these last weeks. It's had some high moments, like the Mount of Transfiguration, where they saw a vision of the pre-resurrected Christ. Peter, James, and John saw that. That's a pretty high moment. That's pretty intense. But, but there's been this pall of darkness sort of cast over the whole thing. Because before that event, Jesus had predicted He was going to die. And uh, He had a confrontation with Peter, who didn't agree much with with that uh, understanding of Jesus' mission. And then they had the Mount of Transfiguration. And then on the way down from the mountain, He told them again that He was going to die, just like John the Baptist had died before Him. And they're confused by that. They don't understand it. And now here we have in this passage another prophecy that Jesus is going to die the third in a very short period of time in the Gospel according to Mark. And the disciples are still confused. And you might wonder, what in the world? How long? How many times can He say it? But I hope today that we'll get at why this was so difficult for them to understand and maybe continues to be difficult for the church to understand. I was reading in the uh, what used to be called the Herald of Holiness, uh, but today is called Holiness Today, and it's our denominational magazine. If, you, if you're not a subscriber, you may check it out. It has some good things, and you don't have to worry. I don't ever get published in there, uh, so you won't have to hear from me. But uh, a pastor from our... Um, uh, pastor from Maine, John Twitchell, who's pastor of Cape Elizabeth Maine Church of the Nazarene, wrote an article called Bury Me With My Feet Pointing East. And this is how it began. I don't want much at my demise. A pine box, family and friends gathered at a church, some hymns, some scripture, and a service of Holy Communion. Tell a story or two about me if you must, but mostly talk about the one who saved, filled, and called me. And when the service is over, follow me to the cemetery, committing my spirit to God as you commit my body to the grave. Oh, and just one more thing. Bury me with my feet pointing east. 
It may seem a strange request, especially in a world that has little use for ancient traditions. Most of us don't know that at one time, churches and graveyards were oriented so that the congregation, both living and deceased, faced east in order to be facing Christ at His return. Even today, some cemeteries retain this orientation so that at the resurrection, we'll all be facing in the same direction. I still remember the first time that this was explained to me. It wasn't in a class on Christian history or worship, nor was it in a book. At one of my first graveside services, the funeral director wanted to make sure I was standing at the head of the casket and made sure I understood why the body was oriented with its feet pointed east. That's so we'll all be facing the same way at the resurrection, he said. Otherwise, we'd be facing every which way when Jesus returns. And uh, you can continue reading the article. Maybe some of you are anxious to know where he goes with that. Now, of course, biblically, there's no way to know for sure if Jesus is going to return in the east. And now that we're fully aware that we're on a globe, it makes it even more complicated, right? (laughs) But reading that article, I started to think about this. There was a time in which the very way in which we buried our dead reflected our faith in the resurrection of Jesus. That the very decision on which way to point a casket, the very decision on when we built church buildings, which direction the congregation should be facing, was based on a firm conviction about the resurrection of the dead. And I thought about that, and I wonder, is the orientation of our lives today indicative of our faith in Jesus? Are we pointed in the right direction? And in some ways, that's what was happening for the disciples. They, had followed, they were Jewish people. They had followed the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob for their entire lives. As far as they knew, the way in which they were pointed, the direction in which they were headed, was thoroughly a God-oriented way. And the problem for them, the difficulty with them, is that Jesus comes and claims to be speaking for God, and at every turn, He keeps telling the Jewish people, you're facing in the wrong direction. You're facing in the wrong direction. And they cannot understand it. How could this be the wrong direction? We've been pointed this way for as far back as our history goes. And we are God's people. Either our entire history is wrong or you're wrong. And guess who we're going to side with? Same place you side with if someone questions your whole family history. Right? If that person's a lunatic, we are right. That's the way it goes, right? But Jesus continues to question the orientation of His disciples. And by questioning them, He questions all of us. What direction are we pointed in? And for Jesus, there are three realities of the kingdom of God that have to be understood if His people are to follow Him. Because Jesus leads in a direction that even our best religious intentions hardly ever lead. And the first is this. And it's maybe the most foundational. I don't even know if I'm going to get out of this point today. You might have to come back for the rest. Life requires death. Life requires death. Look at the second half of verse 31. Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill Him. And after three days, He will rise. But they did not understand what he meant, and they were afraid to ask him about it. This whole Christian thing got started when God decided to take on human flesh in the person of Jesus, to hand himself over to human hands, to embrace death himself, and then to resurrect. 
This is the DNA of Christian faith. There is no way to talk about what it means to be a Christian without crucifixion and resurrection. But it's not only here that crucifixion and resurrection gets play. It's not only in the Christian church. Matter of fact, it was already there in the people of Israel who had to make sacrifices every time they ate meat or offered grain, who yearly had to make sacrifices for their sin. And they were being told through the sacrificial system that in order for you to live, something else has to die. But even the sacrificial system of Israel, from which Jesus roots His own sacrifice for us, that didn't pop out of nowhere. That pattern is rooted in creation itself. And that makes sense. Because if the God who took on flesh in the person of Jesus and laid down His life so that we might live, if He's the God who created this whole thing, we might expect to see that pattern repeated throughout the created order. And we do. Matter of fact, you all killed something today so you could sit here. Anybody have breakfast? Some of you skipped it. Did you eat last night? You ate sometime because there's only so long you can go. without eating. Whether we're talking about plants or insects, I know we think the most alive things are the things most like us, but you know, that's human arrogance, right? The more it looks like us, the more alive it is, so a plant is not like us at all, so it must be virtually dead, right? Already, so vegetarians don't kill, you know, all that stuff, yeah. Happy trails, folks. (laughs) It's all alive. Just because it can't yell at you doesn't mean it's not alive, right? So, whether we're talking about plants or insects or animals, something has to die for something else to live. It has never been another way as far as we can trace back on earth. Your breakfast died so that you might live. And some of you are thinking, I know, you're smart and crafty, right? I ate eggs. Eggs don't die, right? Well, eggs could have been life. You stopped it. (laughs) But just like the food we eat has to be sacrificed so that we can live. You remember that wonderful song, The Circle of Life? Right? It was great when Disney did it. That sounded like a really nice place to live, right? The Circle of Life. Unless you're a gazelle. Right? I love when Simba and his dad are having that conversation. And his dad and, and Simba says, But we eat the wildebeest. And he says, Yes, but then we die and, and the microbes eat us and then we turn into grass and the wildebeest. So it's a beautiful circle of life. Did you ever realize how dark is that? That's terrible. But just like our breakfast and lunch and supper dies every day that we might live. Jesus died so that humanity might live forever. No matter how many things we sacrifice, no matter how many plants die so that you and I can see another day, no matter how many animals are sacrificed, no matter how many nuts are picked off trees, no matter how many seeds are sacrificed intended for the ground to be grown and end up in our stomachs or in our trash cans, no matter how often that happens, we will not live forever. Those sacrifices are temporary. And Israel was supposed to learn that as they made sacrifice year after year for their sins. And just like your food can die every day and you not live any longer than you're going to live, those sacrifices could not save Israel. They could only postpone the inevitable for eternal life to come. Apparently, an eternal being had to die. 
This is the shape of Christianity. The recognition that we must die in order to live. And Christians who follow Jesus, remember Jesus says, you must, if you want to be my disciples, you must take up your cross and follow me. Christians lay down their lives so others may live. Quintessential example of this is the Apostle Paul, who so desperately wanted to see his own people, the people of Israel, choose to follow God. And in Romans chapter 9, Paul says, If I myself could be cut off from God's grace forever for the sake of my people, I would do it. Talk about a man after God's own heart. Of course, no human can die for the other humans, and it wouldn't work. But Paul put that out as his desire for something to live Something else must die. And in, in somehow, the essence of the Christian faith is the belief that we must be willing to embrace the possibility of death if we are ever going to receive eternal life. Now let me play out how that looks. Because most of us think, you know, if somebody put a gun to my head and said, renounce Jesus or die, I would do it. No problem. The difficulty is living for Him, right? not dying for Him. But let me say this. If you're tweeting, this would be a good... I'm, one day I'll be live tweeted. I just keep hoping. I had to convince the youth workers not to tell the kids to put their phones away because it'll never happen as long as they do that. And, uh, you know. We must be willing to follow God no matter the consequences of obedience. We must be willing to follow God no matter the consequences of obedience. And what Jesus is trying to say to His disciples in this passage in Mark is, there is no way for me to be obedient to God and live past that Friday. There's no compromise that can be made. If I'm to follow God, I must die. And then trust Him with what happens next. Embracing death for us is embracing the consequences of obedience to God. We must never use our desire to live as justification for disobedience. We must never use our desire to live as justification for disobedience. This is the pattern of Jesus. We must be willing to make any sacrifice, even of our own lives if need be, to be obedient to Jesus. And we agree to this in principle when we follow Him, but we agree to it in fact when we love our neighbor as ourselves. When we refuse to put our own life, our own desires, our own needs over and above the needs of others. When we recognize that it's not our life that is most sacred, but all life. We must die in order to be resurrected from the dead. The church board and I are reading together this year a book called Shrink by Tim Suttle. And I'd encourage you, if you, if you can get access to that, you might want to join us in reading this. We're reading one chapter a month, and we just finished chapter 2. And they're short chapters you could catch up easily if you want to join us with chapter 3 next month. But the title of the book is Shrink, and your church board is reading it. And uh, Tim Suttle writes these words in the second chapter of that book. Convincing the church it does not exist merely for the benefit of its members, but for the life of the world 
is a pretty bad church growth strategy. I'm just going to say that one more time. Convincing the church it does not exist merely for the benefit of its members, but for the life of the world, is a pretty bad church growth strategy. It's also exactly what the church must do. I know it's a tough sell, but crucifixion seems a lot like a losing strategy unless you believe in resurrection. Life begins with death. For something to live, something else must die. We didn't need the church to tell us this. But we need the church for us to understand it. And this is what was so hard for Jesus' disciples. They just couldn't wrap their minds around it. And so Jesus gave them two practical ways to test whether they were getting it. And did you notice what the two were? How they lead and how they treat children. These are the two that Jesus gives in this context. If you want to know whether you're getting this, then look at how you lead and look at how you treat children. And the first principle is that leadership must not be in front or behind. For Jesus, leadership is underneath. Let me see if I can get at what that means. Chapter 9, verse 34 says this, But they kept quiet, because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. So apparently Jesus' prediction of his death, at least that was setting in, right? I mean, third time he told them he was going to die. The first time Peter argued with him. The second time they were confused. This time they seemed to get it. Because the first thing they do after he says it is, who's going to lead this thing when he's gone? Right? They're looking around. They're sizing things up. I wonder who's going to be the boss? Who's going to be in charge? Who's the greatest of us? You know, maybe some voted for Peter. Maybe they voted for themselves. But at least that was sinking in. They kind of got that he was going to die. But the difficulty for the disciples, and this remains a difficulty for us in the church, so difficult that churches split over this issue. There are denominations today that would call the Church of the Nazarene heretical because of our understanding of this point. I sat in my office not long ago with a man who accused me of, of working with and for a church that was going to hell because of this point I'm going to make. This is big. You didn't know anybody talked to me like that? You thought it was only you, right? I was <laughs> no, just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. No, you people are wonderful. But some people aren't. And they're, they're quite, quite harsh. And some probably say I w- I'm harsh too. Now... It's quite difficult for us to think about leadership in terms of what Jesus is talking about with crucifixion and resurrection. And I think that's why Jesus pulls this out. Because this is a really fundamental area where this has to be practiced. And it's a really fundamental area where it almost never is. We have all the sayings, right? Uh, Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely, right? Everybody hates people in big power, a lot of money, all that kind of stuff. The protests on Wall Street more recently with the 1% being protested by the 99. You know, all that kind of stuff. I mean it's quite difficult when we think of leadership in the kingdom of God because Jesus uses and the New Testament writers the same words we use they don't change the vocabulary they use the same words they use words like leader elder head first 
king and all that. They're all over the New Testament. The same words you and I use. And it's only natural for us to assume that they mean by those words exactly what we mean by those words. But for Jesus, they need to be reinterpreted. You see, a misunderstanding of the gospel is that we have the basic same hierarchical structure in the church as we do in the world. It's just populated with better folks. For Jesus, the whole system has to be re-understood. These are appropriate terms for the kingdom of God, but they have to be reimagined. The first, the head, the leader, the king, the elder in the kingdom of God. Jesus says is to be the last, to be the servant of all. Now, I have to say this, I'm going to say it quickly, because I know how we all love history. But in the Roman culture of Jesus' day, He was upending the Roman social order. The Roman household was meant to be the indoctrination moment for new citizens, for children. And the Roman household was structured in such a way that that the kids would be raised in an environment that was exactly like the broader society. And so the household was meant to be structured with the same hierarchy as the external world so that when they grew up and they became adults, they would be good citizens because they already knew how everything worked because they had been raised that way. And so the Roman household was very strictly hierarchically arranged according to the Roman order. It had the father, the patriarch at the top, the matriarch beneath that, adult children beneath that, slaves and servants beneath that, and infants at the bottom. So that's the structure of the Roman household. It was the structure of Roman society with Caesar at the top and the Senate underneath it. And then the common laborers and soldiers and they had their tearing all the way down and the house was supposed to look that way. Well, Jesus takes this whole thing and He says, if you want to be the patriarch in the kingdom of God, you've got to rethink what that means and instead of what the Romans do, getting the top head seat at the table, you need to be at the bottom. And so he's going to say you have to be below the children. There's this leadership meme, and if you don't know what a meme is, welcome to the 21st century, you'll have to look it up. <laughs> but there's a leadership meme, which just means like a picture online, um, of, of uh, leadership in the kingdom. And I don't want to be too hard on it. I meant to put it up on the board and then I forgot. Um, but uh, I don't want to be too hard on it because a district superintendent, not ours, put this up online. But it showed two different schemes of leadership. One was a person at a desk with a whip saying, go, and laborers dragging him. The other was a leader at the front of the line with the, actually the rope in his hands pulling, saying, follow. And of course, I got the impression that the second one was the one that was being advertised. And if those are the two options at stake for leadership in the kingdom of God, I, of course, would prefer the second one where the leader is working with the people than I do the first one where he's Pharaoh on the chariot and everybody else is a horse. So I certainly would prefer the second one. But neither of those, it seems to me, captures what leadership looks like in the kingdom of God. We're not going somewhere according to Jesus. We're not an army on the run to conquer. We're not going. We're building up. There's a difference. What Jesus is essentially saying, and I'm going to give you an illustration to try and make sense of this. What Jesus is essentially saying is that in the natural order of things, people who are supremely gifted people who have a lot of talents given the society. Every society is different. In ours, big brains, charismatic personality, extrovert, articulate, things happen for you. 
our society not quite so inclined to the introvert, to the more doer as opposed to the learner. But in other societies, it was quite the opposite. In ancient Israel, somebody like David, who was brawny and strong, brave and courageous, could tackle something, leap in head first, was the highest. Because every society is different. But what, if you have the gift set that works really well for your society, then what naturally happens is that you slowly rise to the top. And the whole rest of the structure is there to support you. Right? That's essentially what happens. Matter of fact, this is also built into the physical laws of the universe, paradoxically. How many of you eat granola? Does anybody eat granola ever? Alright. How about mixed nuts? Has anybody ever eaten a can of mixed nuts? Okay. This is called the muesli effect. The muesli effect. In a box of granola, if you shake it up and down, the largest particles, densest particles, will go to the top. And the smallest, lightest particles will go to the bottom. That's the opposite of what you think should happen, right? Heavy stuff should be at the bottom, light stuff should be at the top. It's called the muesli effect. Same thing happens in a can of mixed nuts. If you shake a can of mixed nuts, the Brazil nuts come to the top, even though they are the biggest nuts in the thing. And the smaller nuts go to the bottom. Why? 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 Well, there are about five scientific theories to explain that. None of them agree with each other. Which is another way of saying we are not sure why that happens. But the same thing happens in your garden. You take the stones out every year, and every year, new stones! How can heavy stones rise up through dirt? It makes no sense. But there, there's fluid dynamics and other things that they guess are at stake. But my point is that that is part of the universe that we are in. And it's weird. But it happens in human societies too. The society gets shaken up and the biggest ones, the most gifted, the strongest, they rise to the top. We call it survival of the fittest. We call it the cream rising to the top, right? And then we figure those guys, we got to put them in charge. Look at them. They floated right up there. Tell us how to get up there with you. Throw on a rope. Drag us. Right? But Jesus says, when you build a house, you put the foundation at the bottom. You don't put the weakest, crumbly material on the bottom and then build on top of that and put the concrete on top. You put the foundation at the bottom. And Jesus insists that we have to resist what is most natural in this world. That those who... What, remember, it changes every society. So your gift set today might have made you a king a thousand years ago. And today, it doesn't because the world has changed. And today, your gift set might make you a, a general. But a hundred years from now, you might be homeless. That's my point. Every generation is different. Every culture is different on what is success in that culture. We see this in school and how we test and all that sort of thing. Every culture is different. And what we think, and I don't know where we got this idea. Maybe it's in the Declaration of Independence. Maybe it was in the European Enlightenment. Maybe it's been around longer than that. But we have what, when people hear the phrase, people are created equal. What so many today hear is that we all have the same gifts. It's just a matter of how we use them. So I had a friend who was an entrepreneur, started his own business, worked hard, definitely worked hard, but was skilled. A gifted salesman. He could convince me to become an atheist for the 15 minutes I had lunch with him. I'd rethink it once he left the room, but man, he could sell me on anything. 
wonderful guy. But he felt that he did not need to give charity or give away to anybody else because as far as he was concerned, if you're on the bottom of the pile, you are lazy. You have the same set of skills I have, the same gifts I have. We all have the same tool bag. I've risen. You sunk. That means there's something morally or ethically or work-oriented wrong with you. So why should I give you charity? Nobody helped me. Pick yourself up. Rise to the top. If you don't, you have no one to blame but yourself. That was his mentality. He was a Christian. But Jesus has a, an organism understanding of humanity. That God distributes His gifts as He sees fit. And that those who find themselves in whatever day and age as supremely gifted for success in that world at that time, they have been entrusted with those gifts for the sake of everyone else. Not for their own sake. The system does not exist to support them. They exist to support the system. And so Jesus asked those in the kingdom of God to stop asking, how do I get on top? And start asking, how do I lift, out the, lift up those who are down low? And I'll show you how this works in the church. Battles that I fight. And I'm gonna, we're out of time, and so I'll do this quickly. There's a mentality even in church leadership materials, for instance, that the pastor, who's at the top, right? Somebody believes this. I'm glad somebody believes it. <laughs> that the, the pastor's at the top, and his best use of his skills is to gather other people at the top and make them better at being at the top. Right? Get the leaders, mentor the leaders, let, get the big pieces better at being big pieces. Rising tide lifts all ships, that sort of thing. But when I try to say, I want to be working with the people who are the worst at everything. They say, well, you're wasting your gifts. That's not why you're here. But I'm trying to live into Jesus. Are you trying to live into Jesus? That's the question. So, as we're talking about which way we're oriented, ask yourself, I know some of you aren't, C some of you might be CEOs, you might be commanding officers, you might be other things. Others of you might think, I don't have anybody under me. You have somebody. Whether it's your children, whether it's your grandchildren, whether it's somebody at work who's new, maybe on the same level as you, but has less experience and you've been tasked with training them, whether it's a neighbor who needs some lawn work done and you know how to do it and they don't, whether there's somebody who needs electrical work done and you're, you know how to do electrical and they don't, we all will find ourselves somewhere in this tiering up. And what Jesus is trying to say is that if you want to be great in the kingdom, you're going to take what you have been given and you are going to use it to lift other folks up. So John Wesley, what I'll close with, John Wesley, who's, we kind of consider him a, a, a father in our denomination, someone that we look to and that we respect. He was a priest in the Anglican Church. One of the things he did in his Methodist groups was that he taught the lowest class of society all of the manners and behaviors of the upper classes. He loved to do that. So sometimes we think the phrase cleanliness is close to godliness. You've heard that phrase. Some of us think that that's in the Bible. You won't find it there, but you will find it in John Wesley. He sort of coined the phrase, him and Charles. And what he was trying to teach is that the lower classes who were just menial laborers, there was no reason to teach them table etiquette. There was no reason to teach them leadership skills. There was no reason to teach them basic hygiene because they, were, they worked in the dirt. They were just going to get dirty tomorrow. 
Those kind of, of social graces and skills, those are for the upper classes. But John Wesley said, we're going to teach these young folks. And so he took the lowest classes of society. He taught them how to be clean. He taught them table manners. He taught them leadership skills. He gave them leadership responsibilities in the church. You see what he did? He took a group of people that nobody in the world would have spent any time on and he helped to lift them up. And some people became leaders in the church who in the world had no standing at all. This is the beauty of communion too. Because it doesn't matter if you're a president or a king or a CEO, or a millionaire, or if you've been living on the streets for three years. When we come to this table, we are all the same. And here is this closing physical analogy. So I said if you shake a box up and down, or a can up and down, the biggest pieces will rise to the top, and the smallest pieces will fall to the bottom. You can do that test at home. But there's another mystery. If you shake side to side, the biggest pieces go to the bottom. And it's amazing to me, maybe I'm reading way too much into this analogy, but Jesus seems to be doing a horizontal shake. Doesn't He? You're all the same. He's saying, masters, treat your slaves like brothers. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Fathers, don't exasperate your children. Suddenly there's no hierarchy. He's like doing a horizontal shake and the big pieces are coming to the bottom. And the disciples finally understand that I have been entrusted with these gifts for the sake of my brothers and sisters and not for my own sake. And this is the kingdom of God. Are we oriented with our feet pointing east? How do you lead? This affects you if you're a father at home. The scriptures say that the man is the head of the woman. When you hear that, do you hear Jesus or do you hear Caesar? What do you hear? Because Jesus, as the head of the church laid down His life for the church. Jesus became a servant who took a towel and washed His disciples' feet. He's using our words, but He doesn't mean what we mean. If you're a CEO at work, are you going down to the mail room and taking that newbie who's useless to you and worthless who should really rise through the ranks about a couple decades before they ever come into your office and are you mentoring them? If you're a person who has skills that not everybody has, whatever they might be, are you finding somebody out there? Are you building into them? Are you helping them to acquire skills they don't have? Whether it be electrical work, building, plumbing, whether it be finances, accounting, whatever in the world it is. Computer skills. We have been entrusted for the sake of each other. And believe me, just because you're on top today doesn't mean you won't be at the bottom tomorrow. We age, we decay, we lose our gifts and our skills. But the kingdom of God, there's always a fresh gifting to support the structure. Always. How do you lead? We won't get into the children, we just don't have time. But I will remind you that children were at the bottom rung of the social ladder in Roman society. Matter of fact, some Roman families didn't name their children until they reached five years old because infant mortality was so very high. And Jesus says, anyone who welcomes a child, anyone who welcomes the lowest of the low into their inner circle, welcomes me. That's a horizontal shake. That's going to change the mix of society. And it did. 
over time, but we're human, took thousands of years, slavery was ended. Partnership began to reign in the home rather than Gestapo hierarchy. It took a long time, but the gospel will not stop shaking. And for those who have ears to hear, you will willingly go to the bottom to support the rest. And if you don't, he will put you there. So what happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. I could throw out story after story after story. So here is, and this is a challenge for me, believe me, a challenge for me. Which way are we pointed? Leadership is a litmus test. How we parent, how our marriages work, what kind of an employer or employee that we are, what kind of a neighbor that we are, what kind of a mentor that we are. If there are those of us here mentoring no one, you have failed to understand the kingdom of God. I know. Me too. Would you stand? Maybe the Lord will place on your heart one individual to bring into, to, to build into. Maybe you'll recognize that you have gifts you're not using to support anybody but yourself. It's really just a paycheck for you. It's not a ministry. You don't have to change anything you're doing. God has you exactly where He wants you to be. You're working where He wants you to be. You're surrounded by the people He wants you to be. You're in the right context. So how can you use this reorientation of the kingdom to be Jesus there? That's what he's asking. You have to quit your job. You have to change your neighborhood. Well, maybe some of you might want to. Like, I can't do that with the people I'm around presently, so maybe I find a new job. But believe me, he has you where you are because your gift set, whatever it is, is needed right there to support the structure. What would he have you do? I don't know. Don't look to me. i got enough problems of my own. <laughs> I've got to figure out how I'm supposed to do this thing. As a pastor, as a neighbor, as a father, as a husband, as a child, now for my family, as their pastor in the midst of my own grief. I've got enough problems. I don't know how he's going to ask you to do it, but I can tell you what he's going to ask you to do. He's going to ask you to use what he's entrusted to you to help those around you be better than they are. How are you going to do it? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I give you thanks this day for your word. I pray that we will hear what you tried to say to your disciples, that we'll follow their example as they came to understand what it meant to lead in the kingdom of God, and that you would help us to shed these old, uh, human, imperialistic beliefs about what it means to lead. And you would help us to understand what it means to be kingdom people, who when our caskets go in the ground, have our feet pointed east. May we be oriented to Jesus. May we follow Him. In Jesus' name, amen.